please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. We will be in Jonah 3 and Jonah 4 today as we conclude this series of messages that we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Jonah. And we will uh, finish up today in Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah chapter 4. And so as you're finding your Uh, finding the book of Jonah today. Also, make sure that your fingers are loose because we're going to be turning to several passages of Scripture here today as we journey through Jonah 3 and 4. As we look at this prophet has been uh, running from God and he was making his way away from Nineveh where God told him to go and he found a boat in the port of Jaffa and he got on that boat and he began to sail as far away from Nineveh as he could go. God brings a great storm over that boat, and the sailors begin to uh, get scared, and Jonah is in the belly of the boat, and he is fast asleep while the storm is raging outside, and the sailors trying to do everything they can to save the boat, and so they start throwing supplies over, and finally they realize that this storm is a, a judgment from God, a judgment from Jehovah God, and Jonah said, it's my fault that the storm has come, throw me overboard, and you will be saved, and so that's what they did. They throw Jonah overboard. The, the sailors come to know God, and, and that's an exciting thing, but Jonah is sinking down into the ocean. God appointed a big fish, a great fish, to come and swallow Jonah. You say, do you believe that? Of course I believe that. If, if God can raise his son from the dead, then God can appoint a big fish to swallow a man. And so he brought a great fish, and he swallowed Jonah. And this is where we pick up the story now. Following the prayer of Jonah in Jonah chapter 2, we come now to Jonah chapter 3. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah, this time, Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city during a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth and the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Not only did the people fast, but the beast and the cows fasted. He said, verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they had done, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, God, as we speak from Jonah 3 and Jonah 4 today, Father, may our hearts be ready to hear a word from you. May we be prepared to hear a word from you. We ask this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and all of God's people said, please be seated. The first thing that we see here today as we walk through Jonah chapter 3 is that God can use our past failures to bring about future victories. God can use our past failures to bring about future 
victories. So here we find the prophet. The last verse of chapter 2 says the great fish came and spit Jonah out on the dry sea, on the shores of Nineveh. He goes to the town preaching, and even the king gets saved. The scripture tells us that he put on sackcloth and ashes. That, that means that, that they realize the sackcloth and ashes is an outward sign of an inward reality. And so the, the, these, these Gentile dogs, these people who had never heard or never trusted in the, name, in the God of Israel, they hear this message from Jonah, and they put on sackcloth and ashes. They begin to fast, and they begin to cry out to God, just as those Gentile sailors did uh, three days earlier when Jonah was thrown overboard. And so here we find this. You say, wow, what in the world did Jonah say? Jonah must have said something big, or, or what did Jonah do, or, or how did he say something to make all of these evil people? Because understand, the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, were, were very mean people. They were the present-day ISIS. You've seen what ISIS is doing to people over in the Middle East. These, this, this is what the Assyrians were doing. These were evil people. These were, these were people that, that did heinous things. They were terrorists of their day. What in the world would cause them to listen to this prophet? What's interesting, some preachers say that because Jonah had been in the belly of, of a fish for three days and three nights, that when he was spit out, he, he probably looked funny. Maybe he, maybe he had lost all of his hair. Maybe he had been bleached white because of all the digestive juices that, that maybe disfigured him. We don't know if he looked funny. I'm sure he smelled funny if he lived in a fish for three days. He probably smelled funny. We don't know if he looked funny or not. But I believe that the text does give us a very clear understanding of why the Ninevites listened to Jonah. And it had nothing to do with what he looked like or even what he smelled like. The text tells us that when Jonah goes and he preaches to the Ninevites, that not only did the city hear him, but the king heard him as well. At any other point, if, if a prophet would have walked into Nineveh and said, turn from your gods, the Ninevites, they, they, were, they were polytheist. They, they were like the Hindus of today. They had many gods, a plurality of gods. They didn't serve one god. They had many, 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 many gods. If, if anyone would have come in and said, your gods are false, turn to the one God, that prophet would have been killed. They wouldn't have listened to him. These are heinous people. They, 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 they genocide, they, they kill other people. They, they, don't, they are not good people. So what in the world happened to cause them to listen to Jonah? Well, the last verse of chapter one, the opening verses of chapter two tell us that a great fish swallowed Jonah. This is important. It's important that the text calls this beast that swallows Jonah a fish. The Hebrew word for fish is the word dog. It's spelled D-A-G, if you're taking notes, D-A-G. But it's not pronounced dag, it's pronounced dog in Hebrew. Here's what's interesting. As we said, the Assyrians were, were polytheists. They, they, were, they were Canaanite people. They shared uh, many different gods. They had a Parthenon of gods, as the Greeks did, as the Romans did. They had many gods with a head god and, and many other gods, Zeus and, and all those. But, but their gods were different. The Canaanites, they, they had a prophet, or their, their god was one of the ones that we hear about a lot because he's mentioned in the Bible, is the false god Baal. Remember when Elijah went uh, up on the mountain, on Mount Carmel, and, and he fought against the prophets of Baal, right? You follow me? This is one of the gods of the Assyrians, one of the gods of, 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 the, of the Canaanites. 
Well, what's interesting is that one of the main gods of the Assyrians, in fact, one of the head gods of the Assyrians was this false god known as Dagon, D-O-G-O-N. It's actually spelled D-A-G-O-N, but it's pronounced Dagon, not Dagon. This, this false god, Dagon. Now, if you think Dagon, Dagon, that sounds familiar. Where do I find that? It's actually in the Bible. Uh, this was the Philistine god as well. Remember when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into their Philistine city and they, they were celebrating, they were so excited, we, we've got the Ark of the Covenant here in our city and they put, they put it before their false god, their false statue of Dagon, not Dagon, but their false statue of Dagon and what happened? They woke up the next morning and that statue had fallen over on its face. It's one of the funniest stories in scripture showing that the false god of the Philistines, even the statue must bow down to God himself. This is the, the, the god Dagon. Sometimes we pronounce it Dagon, but it's, it, it's, it's Dagon. The word Dagon has at its root dog, D-A-G, which again in Hebrew means what? Fish. Some of you are awake this morning. That's good. So the word dog in Hebrew is fish. Dagon comes from the Hebrew word dog. And it just so happens that the Philistine god and the Assyrian god Dagon was half man and half, guess, fish. There you go. Get the picture. Can't you see these Assyrians out fishing one day? Beautiful day outside on the coast of Nineveh. And as they're fishing, here comes this gigantic mammoth fish beaches himself, opens his mouth, vomits out of his mouth, and here comes a man. These people who worship the fish god, what do you think is going through their mind? This man is from God. This man, we need to listen to him. Jonah picks himself up. The scripture tells us he goes into Nineveh. Of course, word has spread that this man was blown out of the fish's mouth. We need to listen to him. He's a prophet. And what does Jonah say? He says, turn from your false gods and turn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, God can take our past mistakes. If it wasn't for his past mistake of running from God, God can take our past mistakes and bring about future victories. Now, some of us may be thinking, well, then what does it matter how I live? I, I, I can do whatever I want to. I can live in sin. I can live it up. And God will just use my sin to bring other people to Jesus. So I can do whatever I want to do, and God will use it for his glory. Is that right? Well, some of us think this way. And in fact, this is a thought that has been going around for some time, for a very long time. I can sin, I can do whatever I want to do, and, and because I'm a Christian, all I have to do is pray and ask for forgiveness and God will forgive me, and it, so it doesn't matter if I sin or not. We begin to reason and to think, well, it's okay, and, and it is true. When we sin and we confess that sin, God will forgive us, but, but listen, it's not okay to think that all I can do I can sin, I can live however I want to. Keep your finger there in Jonah chapter 3 and turn over with me to the book of Romans chapter 6. As we turn over to Romans chapter 6, I want you to think with me about this concept of, of living however we want to. 
Can I live it up? <clears throat> can, I, can I do whatever I want to do so that, that grace may abound? So the more I sin, the more God will take that sin and use it for his glory. So, so we can get it in our mind that the more I sin, the more the glory of God will shine. And Paul addresses this very question in Romans chapter 6, and he says this, verse 1, look at it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? If that doesn't register with our minds, he goes on in verse 15. Notice what he says. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, look at verse 23. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. There it is. That verse is key. Understand this, church. There are always consequences to sin. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, we said that God can hit a good lick with a crooked stick, right? God still used the, the sin of Jonah to bring about the sailor's salvation. You say, well, what if Jonah would have just went on to Nineveh? Wouldn't he have been killed? He wouldn't have been vomited out of the mouth of, out of a fish. We don't know. We can't conjecture what God would have done and how God would have moved. But still, the one thing we do know is that God used his failures to bring about future victories. And so we can't, we can't sit here and debate what might have been or what could have been, just like you can't debate that for your own life. You will drive yourself mad if you say, well, what if I didn't commit this sin? Or what if I didn't do this? What if I didn't marry this person? What if I, if I didn't make that mistake? What, what, if, what, if, what if this didn't happen? And what if I would have done this? You, you can drive yourself mad playing what if, what if, what if. You cannot change the past. The past is unchangeable, but you can change your future by the decisions that you make right here in the present. And here's what I understand, and here's what I know. By looking at Jonah, while we can play the what-if game, when we look at Jonah, we understand that God takes our past failures, and he can still use them for future victories. God takes our sin, he takes our mistakes, and he turns them around for his good. But that doesn't mean that we just continue to live in sin. There are real consequences to sin. Look at Moses. There are two main areas in his life that we can point to to see consequences of sin. First of all, when God called him. Over in Exodus chapter 4, you can write this down, we're not going to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 4, we're going to be in the book of Numbers here in just a moment, so you can turn to the book of Numbers. But in Exodus chapter 4, Moses tells God that, that he's not eloquent enough. Remember the story, God shows up in a burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And what does Moses say? Moses says, I can't do that. I, I'm not eloquent enough in speech. I can't do that. Exodus chapter 4 verse 4 says that the anger of the Lord kindled inside of God. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Listen, sin has consequence. The consequence of that sin. You say, well, what's the big deal? It wasn't like Moses killed a guy. Well, actually, he had done that already. But you say, well, what's the big deal here? What's the big deal with this one? He, he's just being honest. Moses was a stutterer. All he said was, I'm not eloquent in speech. I can't go. You're telling me to go and speak to Pharaoh. I'm a stutterer. I'm not eloquent in speech. 
understand this. We must stop making excuses for our sin. There is no such thing as a big sin or a little sin. You may say, well, what's the big deal with, with this sin of Moses? It's just a little sin. No, 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 no. There's no such thing as a little sin with God. Some of you may be thinking, well, there's times in my life that I ask God, why? Why me? Why this? Is that a sin? Well, no. It's not a sin to ask God why to, or to express your grief or to express your pain. But understand, this is not what Moses was doing. Moses was not saying, why me? Moses was saying, not me. Huge difference. In essence, Moses was calling God a liar. God told Moses to do something, and Moses said, God, you've got the wrong person. I can't do this. God told him he can. Moses said, I can't. He called God a liar. It's a sin. And his sin carried a huge consequence. God's desire was to bless Moses and to bless the generations of Moses. But because Moses said, I can't do this, what did God do? Did God turn his back on Moses? No. He still used him, but he said, go get Aaron, your brother, and I will choose to bless him. And it's from the line of Aaron, the brother of Moses, that the Levite line, the priestly line, was then established. Not from the sons of Moses, but from the sons of Aaron. Let me show you something. Look at Numbers chapter 3. Numbers chapter 3. Numbers chapter 3, verse 1. These are the generations of Aaron, and circle this next word, and Moses. See it? These are the generations of Aaron and Moses. At the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai, these are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn. And then he goes on, Eleazar, Ithamar. You, you read through Numbers chapter 3, and never once does he mention the sons of Moses. He says here in the opening that, that the generations of Aaron and Moses, but understand, Moses forfeited his generational blessing and Aaron took it there's consequences to sin it should have been Moses who was the priest it should have been Moses that was that was the desire of God but because of the the sin of Moses God chose to bless Aaron the second time of Moses disobedience is there in numbers but on into chapter 20 you know the story Moses was up to the eyeball, up to his eyeballs with, with the complaining of the people. I mean, these people complained about everything. They complained that they, that they had all this free food, right? They, it, they, they had, it was, it was the, the first socialism, I guess. They had all this free stuff, and they didn't work for it. All this stuff, and it was right here. All this manna, just go out and get the manna, and it's yours. Go out and get the quail. It, it's literally right here. They complained about it. They complained about it. The, the, the Bible tells us that, that they walked for so many years, but their sandals never wore out. They complained about that. I'm tired of these sandals, but their sandals never wore out. They were, they were tired of their clothes. The Bible says that, that God brought a blessing, a miracle upon them, and their clothes never wore out. A, 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 a mother or a father of a five-year-old, we have a five-year-old, and she goes through, through she has these, these, these tights, and, and we put brand new tights on her. And the next day she comes in, and, and they've got holes in the knees. And we're just, ah, what are you doing? We, we can't keep, we can't keep uh, tights without getting holes in the knees. And, and we're complaining about that. But, but the Hebrews, their kids would run around with their tights and never get holes in them. How cool is that? That's awesome. But they complained about it. I think some Baptists have that spiritual gift. We, we complain. We have the spiritual gift of complaining. 
And they complain, they complain, and they complain about everything. And Moses had it up to his eyeballs. And, and, and God told Moses, he said, the people are thirsty. I want you to go, and I want you to raise your staff, and I want you to speak to that rock. And that rock is going to bring forth living water. We find in the New Testament that rock is a representation of Christ, but what does Moses do? Moses comes out, and I'm sure people were complaining. He got over it. He got mad. And instead of speaking to the rock to bring forth water, what did he do? He took his staff and he hit it twice. Because of that, God said, because of that sin, because of that disobedience, there was a consequence to that sin. He said, you will never step foot in the land of promise. You say, well, wow. That, that, that penalty doesn't fit the crime. All he did was hit a rock. Oh, yes, that penalty fits the crime. Sin. Sin comes with a great price. Disobedience to God comes with a great price. There's always, there are always consequences to our sin. Jonah's consequence to his sin was a three-day and three-night stay in a not-so-cozy hotel. However, the the flip side is that, that while there are consequences to sin, God will use our past failures to bring about future victories. The point is that it's not about our sin at that point. It's not about our sin at that point. It's about how awesome our God is. It's about how forgiving our God is that he will take our past mistakes, our past failures, and he will even take those and use them for his glory. Some of us have testimonies of coming out of drugs and alcohol, abuse, divorce, and and how God used those past issues of life and how he uses that today to bring honor and glory to him. God uses our past mistakes to bring about future victories. This leads us to point number two today. Number two, God's wrath is certain, but his mercy is evident. God's wrath is certain, but his mercy is evident. Look, go back over to Jonah chapter three and look at verse number 10. The Bible says, when God saw what they had done, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Some take this verse and say, well, God changes, that God does not know the future. In fact, there is a growing group of of so-called Christians today who adhere to this, this, this theology called open theism. Ever heard of it? Open theism. It's a very, very dangerous thing. It's a very scary thing. Beware. An open theist believes that God, while he may be all-knowing, he does not know the future. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Can I tell you, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. And how people, how people have, have gravitated to this theology, it's growing. There are churches in this city that, that believe in this type of doctrine. The Bible tells us in the last days that there's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing who are, are giving, they, they sound like they're, they're teaching the truth, but they're void of the truth. Look at all the prophecies that God has given us in the Bible. If God did not know the future, how in the world can he give us the prophecies in all the Old Testament prophesying about what's going to come? And 100% of his prophecies have come to fruition. If God didn't know the future, then how in the world can he give us the book of Revelation and tell us exactly how the end is going to take place? But for some reason, this thought is gaining momentum in churches today. I, I urge you, guard yourself. Guard yourself. But one of the verses that these open theists use is Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. They say that God, it says God relented. The King James says God repented. 
When we think of, of that word repent, we think of how we repent. We, we repent when we realize that we messed up. The, the, the point here in this verse is not that God messed up. God does not make mistakes, and God, God was not caught by surprise at the Ninevites' turn. Let me give you a story. Very few of you here have ever met my father. My father, let me tell you about him. My father is a good man. My father is a just man. My father comes from the old generation that, that says that his word, when, when, when he gives you his word, his word is just as good as anything. Ever heard of that type of generation? I wish it was back again today. But your, but your word, your word carried weight. Now, with that understood, let me tell you who I was when I was a little boy. When I was a little boy, you see, little boys, I've come to realize this. We have a five-year-old, almost six-year-old girl, Abigail, who has beautiful long hair, beautiful long hair. And Elijah, who is walking and getting into everything, he's almost one, he likes to pull Abby's hair. Well, he got that from his daddy. I have an older sister just like Eli has an older sister. And, and my sister had long hair just like Abigail. And I would go up and it's so tempting. I mean, I'm even tempted today to pull Abby's hair. It's just so tempting. I see that hair, I just want to pull it. It's something within boys. I just want to do it. But I would do that. And, and my dad got to the point, he got tired of my sister running to him and, and crying. And, and my dad sat me down. He said, Wesley, son, listen. If you pull your sister's hair again, I'm going to take you to the woodshed. Everyone here knows what the woodshed is. Did you have a woodshed growing up? I, I'm, I'm going to practice. My, my dad didn't practice a lot of the Bible, but he, he liked to practice sparing the rod, spoiling the child. He, he didn't like to spare the rod too much, if you catch my drill. He said, son, if, if you pull your sister's hair you are likely to meet your maker. And I'm not talking about me. Okay, so here's my choice. Again, none of you have ever met my father. Very few of you have met my father. But knowing what you know about my dad, if I walked up to my sister Robin and I pulled her hair when I was a young boy, what do you think my dad was going to do? He was taking me to the woodshed. Now, as I said, my dad is a just man. If I did not pull my sister's hair, would I still have been taken out to the woodshed for doing it, even if I didn't do it? Well, of course not. He's just me. He's not going to punish me for something that I didn't do. Now, in that story, who changed? Did my father change? <laughs> Absolutely not. His word was his word. He meant every, I really believe he meant every bit of that. Who changed? I did. It was my choice to make. The judgment was brought forth, and it was my choice either to sin or to obey. Going back to the story of Jonah, who changed? It wasn't God. God did not change. God is the, the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. Who changed were the Ninevites. It wasn't that God didn't know the future. Of course God knew the future. 
but it was the Ninevites. That, that would have been uncharacteristic of God to, to bring judgment if, even, if, even when the Ninevites changed. Let me give you a scripture. It's on the screen. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7. God tells us exactly how he deals with countries and nations. He says that if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That does not mean that God changed his mind. That does not mean that God didn't know the future. God is giving us his game plan here. He said, if you repent, if you change, if you turn to me, I will not bring the judgment upon you that I will do. If you don't change, I will bring this judgment. But if you do change, I will stay my hand. This tells me that God has already said what he's going to do. Again, this doesn't mean that God changed. It means that God is God. It means he's fulfilling his promises. In America, we had better wake up. We are playing Russian roulette with God. And if we don't stop flirting with sin and flaunting our sin, this great country that I believe was founded by God himself, that he will completely remove his hand of blessing off of us. I'm going to say this. You've heard me say this many times. We had better get Tuesday right. And we better get November right. God's wrath is certain, but his mercy is evident. Remember what mercy is. We get confused between mercy and grace. Grace Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Grace is what we parents do to these kids, and I think that we're doing it all wrong. But our kid comes in last place, and we give him a trophy. I don't know why we do it, but, but we do that. We don't want any kid left behind. You, you come in last place, and we congratulate you. Here, here's, you get the biggest trophy because you came in last place. Good job. That's grace. That's receiving something you didn't deserve. You did not earn it. You did not come in first place. You, you came in last place. You don't, you don't win a trophy. Maybe we give you a ribbon or something. But you don't get a trophy. If you get a trophy, if you get anything for coming last place, that's grace. You receive something you did not earn, that's grace. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. If grace is receiving what we don't deserve, mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. Do you understand the difference? Mercy, when, when, when you hear about a person who goes into a courtroom and the, the statement that we say, we throw ourselves on the mercy of the court what are we saying we're guilty i'm guilty of of what i'm being accused for i'm placing myself on the mercy of the court what are we saying i did it but please don't give me the punishment don't give me the punishment for what i did what is it that moses deserved what is it that jonah deserved what is it that the ninevites deserved what is it that we deserve i mean if we are guilty of sin romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the result of sin our sins result is death and that's what we deserve an eternity separated from him however because of God's mercy we don't have to receive what we do deserve that's the good news his mercy is found in Jesus Christ that while we deserve death he offers to us life while we deserve hell, he gives us the opportunity for heaven. Glory to God. God can use our past mistakes to bring about future victories. God's wrath is certain. 
his mercy is evident. Number three, we must not major on the minors and minor on the majors. Final point today. We must not major on the minors and minor on the majors. We didn't read Jonah chapter four, but let me give you the cliff notes of what happened. So Jonah goes in, and, and as we read in chapter three, all of Nineveh gets saved, the king on down. And I mean, he even puts sackcloth on the cows, right? The cows are walking around with sackcloth and ashes, and they, they take the grass from the cows themselves. Everybody is fasting. What should Jonah be doing? Jonah, Jonah should be excited, right? A whole city got saved. He should be celebrating, but we find him in Jonah chapter four, not celebrating, but sulking. He sits down, he sits up on a hill and he's overlooking Nineveh. And he said, God, you see, this is why I didn't wanna to come to Nineveh because I knew that you would forgive them and they are not worthy of salvation. They are not worthy of the mercy that you just gave to them. It started getting hot and Jonah, Jonah was getting hot and so God performed another miracle. Your Bible says that he created a tree and that tree grew in a day. Gave Jonah relief from the sun. And then teaching Jonah a lesson, God created a worm. He placed that worm on that tree and in a day that tree was gone. Let's pick up at verse eight. See what Jonah's response was. Now when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and I said, it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be so angry for the plant? God is saying, Jonah, wake up. Are you seriously going to be mad because this plant just died? Of all the things that have happened to you in your life, you're really going to be mad because this plant just died. Notice what Jonah said. Well, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. This is your first Hollywood actor right here. Drama king. Sitting here, all of this wonderful things just happened. Literally was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights and he lived. He goes in, sees the biggest revival this world has ever seen. And now he's wanting to die because a dumb tree just wilted. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand and they have a lot of cattle? You see, this is a very perplexing way to end a book. No other prophet ends his book this way. And we have no idea what happened to the prophet after this. Th this man who saw a whole city get saved, his, his lasting legacy because of his sin is him crying like a baby because he got a sunburn. So sad. Here's a man, here's a man who was a kingmaker. He, he, had, he had the ability and the the. the not, not only the, the, the ability to speak, but, but he actually was able, the kings allowed him to walk into the court of the king and to speak into the life of the king. He had a large following in Israel. He, he saw a whole city get saved. This is a man who should be, who, who should be a, lot of, a lot of rewards, a lot of books should be written about this man. 
But we don't know a single event that happened in Jonah's life after this. His legacy is marked with him crying like a baby. Here's what's going on in chapter 4. What should have Jonah been doing? What should have he been doing? Well, he should have been on his knees thanking God for delivering the lost city of Nineveh. But instead, what was he doing? His concern was on something that didn't even matter. He minored on the main thing, which was the whole city getting saved. That, 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 wasn't, that was the big thing, but he minored on the major. And he majored on a dumb little tree that was so minor. He minored on the majors and he majored on the minors. And church, listen to me. We at times have a tendency to do this ourselves. We make a mountain out of a molehill. Things that really don't matter, we make them a mantra that we're going to die for. Do I really need to give examples to the church this, to today to, of, of how we do this? So many churches across our nation, we, we, we major on the minors, we minor on the majors. We do this with music. We do it with ministries. We do it with locations of Sunday school classes. I've seen Christians who were told, your Sunday school class is going to have to move from this room and you're going to have to move across the hall. Literally, you don't have to walk any more space, but you're going to move from here across the hall. And Christians say, oh, I'm just going to go find me another church. Seriously? You're seriously going to leave the church because you're having to move your Sunday school class across the hall. Well, there's the door. There's the door. We have a tendency to major on the minors and minor on the majors. This, in two weeks on a Saturday, you see it in your bulletin. It's Easter weekend. We're giving an opportunity for the church to major on what we often place as a minor. And I'm praying that we begin to major on the majors and minor on the minors. That, that we focus in on what matters and we, we reject what doesn't matter. The Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday in two weeks, I'm calling the church to a time of prayer and fasting for that one day. Between the hours of 8 a.m. until 12 noon, the church doors are going to be open. And I'm inviting the whole church to come. There's not going to be a service. You come at any point during that time from 8 to 12. You come. Maybe you only fast for, for the breakfast. That's fine. Maybe you fast for lunch that day. Maybe you fast from dinner. Maybe you fast the whole day. I, I, it, the Lord will lead you. But church, I don't ask you to do a lot of things. But I am asking us to do this. Why? Because I understand and you understand that we are in a spiritual warfare. And if we are in a spiritual warfare, we must come to battle with spiritual weapons. The day after we have our time of prayer and fasting, we're going to prayerfully fill up this sanctuary three times. 8.15, 9.30, and 10.45 on Easter Sunday morning. So many people are going to be coming through these doors who are spiritually blind, who don't know Christ, who don't know Jesus. And I'm challenging us as the church body to be praying and fasting for two things. Number one, for Easter Sunday morning, praying and fasting, praying and fasting that, that lost people will be saved on Easter Sunday. And then the second thing that we're going to be praying and fasting for on that Saturday 
is there's going to be a tent set up right outside in the front of our sanctuary, right where the children's building is going to be built. And I'm going to ask us as the church, as we come in and we pray, any time between 8 a.m. and 12 noon, we come in here, we kneel. If you want to kneel at these steps, that's fine. We'll have a, a prayer card for you to, 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 to read. You, you pray as long as you want or as, 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 as quick as you want. And then we're going to ask you to go outside and, and under that tent, we're going to have places where you can kneel down and pray where that children's building is going to go. I have no idea how that building is going to get built. Lord knows we don't have the money. But I truly believe that God is going to bring the increase, and I believe that we will build this building completely debt-free. $5 million building, I believe. The largest undertaking this church has ever done, I believe that we'll do it debt-free. I don't know how. I don't know how. But I understand that if that's going to take place, it's going to require us, the church of Jesus Christ, to be praying and fasting, asking God, because that right there is going to be a miracle, won't it? And I look forward to the day that I can stand in this pulpit on a Sunday morning and say, church family, you're not going to believe this, but we have $5 million being given to us, and we're building that children's building. You see, that's majoring on the majors. That, 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 that's, that's fighting for what matters. That's, that, that's, that's making our legacy, storing up treasures for us in eternity. Dear friend, I challenge you to look in your heart if there's sin there, repent of it. Repent today. Turn to God, who's the giver of life. Turn your thoughts to him. Ask him to help you to major on the majors and, and minor on the minors. Don't worry about the things that don't matter, but focus in on the things that really do matter. We have a saying back home, and it goes like this. You eat the watermelons and spit out the seeds. Ever heard of it? You eat the watermelon and spit out the seeds. Life is too short to do what Jonah did. Let's take what we have and use it to see the city turned upside down, the gospel of Jesus Christ.